Within the depths of the strip mall of the damned lies a decrepit video store long since shuttered. Past the dusty shelves, empty save for spiders spinning their patient webs. Beyond the ancient bat-wing doors guarding the sepulcher where once were hidden the perverse and heretical, a secret society assembles to scrutinize those films which are rumored to drive viewers to madness and dissolution. Draw closer, dear listener. Let your trembling ears sup upon the eldritch knowledge of the Cinemania Society. The story so far. Theorizing that one can travel in time using random holes in reality that conveniently pop up now and then, the society stepped through a time hole and vanished, only to continue bickering about tonight's movie in a selection of random locations through history. Finding themselves temporarily safe, the Cinemania Society continued to discuss 1981's Time Bandits, directed by Terry Gilliam. Infighting and standard fighting has broken out in the group as the bandits realize they haven't been doing a very good job of banditing. Unknown to them, they are being watched by the most evil creature in all of creation, played naturally by David Warner. The evil one has a plan to steal the map from the bandits in order to remake all of creation the way he wants it, and that's generally going to be a bad time for everyone involved. 1980's Muppet head urchin Kevin is separated from the group and ends up in ancient Crete with Sean Connery, proving once again that sheer charisma will make you overlook any accent. Soon it's up down another time hole with the bandits for a brief trip on the Titanic before entering the time of legends where the evil one awaits them. In other news, the Cinemania Society has had to flee through time again, and when are they going to learn to avoid strange holes in reality? It never ends well. Hey, check it out, I found this cool hat! Isn't that cultural appropriation? Nope, still just breaking and entering. Hmm, this place seems pretty quiet. Let's continue the conclave. Fairfire mm. Andy, what a great opportunity for you to finish our summary of Time Bandits. Mm. The Time of Legends turns out not to be the dry land of legends just yet. The Time Bandits are floating in the ocean quite reasonably, wondering what they're going to do now, when luckily a ship comes by. It is a suitably fantastical affair, crewed by an ogre with a bad back who catches them in a net while fishing for trash. Unfortunately for the ogre, his back seizes up as he throws the time bandits into a stew pot, which is the sort of thing you do when you're an ogre. Kevin promises he can cure his bad back with stretching if he lets them go. He agrees, and if you've ever had a bad back, you know how it is when you're ready to try anything. However, this is all part of Kevin's cruel and brutal plan. They throw the ogre over the side and push his wife overboard for good measure because Kevin doesn't mess about. This is why chiropractors are a dangerous bunch. Yes. Um, I do want to point out that Catherine Hellmond, who plays the ogre's wife in this, is absolutely delicious as the enabler of, of a villain. Like she is, she is very sweet and obviously loves her ogre husband and has no problem sharpening up literal skewers to put these dwarves on. <laughs> oh yeah, she's having a wonderful time. She's amazing. Um, and folks might recognize her as playing uh, Sam Lowry's mother, Ida, in Brazil, which is another Terry Gilliam movie, the one that followed this one immediately. She's been in lots of stuff, lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff going back to the late 70s. She was in Coach, it's that TV series. She was in Who's the Boss, um, if anybody remembers that horrible Mona. TV series. Yeah, that's right, she played Mona. Uh, anyway, so please carry on. Well, clearly she's the boss. Now then. The Time Bandits sail away, but quickly run aground on something. 
it turns out, they ran into the head of a giant wandering around in the water and nearly topple off the ship. As the giant traipses onto land, he steps on a cantankerous couple in the middle of an argument, which effectively ends the dispute. Only after the time bandits drug the giant with sleeping potion that they literally inject into the top of his head does he sit down to take a snooze and they can finally escape. Uh, another funny side note is that troll that comes out of the little of the little cottage that the mm. giant mm -hmm. steps on. That weird sort of elephant-headed troll reappears in Monty Python's Meaning of Life in that middle section where they're like, I wonder where the fish has gone. And I was like, why the hell does that look familiar? And then I realized, oh, it's the same weird little, you know, monster head from... Uh, from time bandits. I also really appreciated the way Terry Gilliam shot this scene with just a regular sized dude, but from a really low angle, so he looks ginormous. Yeah, this is yes. Gilliam's go-to effect. Whenever he needs a giant, get a big fat guy, put the camera down low, and it'll just work, and it does. They redid this gag for a movie called Evil Alien Conquerors, which I will suggest that at some point this conclave review. Uh, but they did a similar gag with a guy who um, they just used really subjective angles to make him look like a giant. This time, the Time Bandits managed to walk for miles before inevitably starting to fight again about the map directions. A near mutiny erupts after they walk face first into an invisible barrier. But as the violence escalates, a lobbed skull shatters the glass, separating them from the Fortress of Darkness. Surprisingly, yes, yes. this darkness, I'm, I have to say, this more than anything, the Fortress of Ultimate Darkness is what made me want to go into making movies. I just built models. I was playing with Games Workshop miniatures, and then I, after seeing this, this specific model, this is what made me think, I want to go into making models for movies, because it's fucking amazing. It is still, to me, one of the best miniatures ever made for a movie. And movie making's loss is also model making's loss there. Thank you, Brother Ethan. <laughs> I'm making <clears throat> movies myself. What the hell are you talking about? Surprisingly, none of them are scared of the incredibly creepy, gigantic, skull-decorated fortress. The evil one is ready for them and sets a trap a maze leading to the most fabulous object in the world. The prize of this game show is the Wonder Major All-Automatic Convenience Centerette. Ironically, the game show presenters are Kevin's mom and dad, but Kevin knows this is a trap. His parents never smile like that. Uh, also, by this point, Kevin seems to know a thing or two about luring people to their doom by making convenient promises. The Time Bandits, however, rush blindly towards the prize. Once they arrive at the end of the maze, the Evil One reveals himself, takes the map, and throws them into a big cage, hanging over an endless void among other similar cages filled ominously with bones. Kevin can't get away either. He too is captured by a skull-headed creature. In case it needs mentioning, the Evil One really likes the whole skull motif. I suppose that's one way to get ahead of yourself. <laughs> oh, man. No, cut. we're going to cut that. That's that's too awful. That's low-hanging. That's so low-hanging. <laughs> also, great effects here. It's literally a cage in a big black void. Nothing. Yeah, I, I do not know how they did half this stuff with the budget that they had. And, but they did it. They did it grandly with that budget. And, uh, get, yeah, it's very believable, and it's all practical. Uh, matte paintings, I'm pretty sure, for the maze. But like, as far as the cages go, 
They sell it. Things look bleak, literally. Kevin and the gang are hanging in a black void, and that really is the gold standard for your whole general sort of bleakness. But then, Kevin reveals the Polaroid photo he took of the group with the map earlier in the film, and it appears that there is a time hole in the Fortress of Darkness itself, the biggest one of all, that could lead any time and every when. The Time Bandits cut some strands from the rope holding up the cage to create another, smaller rope, but this leaves them quite literally hanging by a thread. They manage to swing one of their number like a pendulum and set up an impromptu tightrope act to circus themselves to freedom and start to run away to the time hole. But Kevin stops them. He convinces them that they can't just leave evil with the map because he'll use it to destroy the world. That's um, just a note. One of their number is the boss, Jack fucking Purvis, who did all his own stunts. He is a badass. And these are pretty amazing stunts, considering that they had no money for safety crew, obviously. Hey, wait, stop. Do you, do you see that up on the wall? The okay wall? The not great yet, but we have big plans wall of China. Do you see any other walls around here? We're in ancient China. Which wall am I going to be talking about? Uh oh, I see what you mean. They're coming over the wall. Ew. Phrasing? Ahem. <clears throat> the cannibalistic human... I thought you were going to interrupt me. No, no, they're a fair way off yet. Well, maybe I don't want to say it now. Okay, you don't have let's... to say anything you don't want to. Let's see. Map says right. Through here. Follow me. Drop those lychees, Andre. You don't need them. Why not? We have to run! You can't run and carry lychees in your mouth at the same time. You'll choke. God, it's like I'm talking to my toddler. Watch me. I got this. Ow. Pretty neat. What is all this stuff? Looks like gramophones. And look at this. They they used to use these wax cylinders to record sound onto. Uh, well, those were much older, but based on what I see around us, this must be the 1920s, I'd say. Well, anyone know how to use these things? You, you just have to press this control here. Rhetorical question, you fossil of the world's shittest lizard. Turn it on. So cruel! Welcome to Honest Sal's Discount Wax Cylinder Repository. Why, buddy, you can find the most advanced technology for recording sounds here at Sal's. We've got all these guys when you fail. Well, that's a piece of crap, but a lousy piece of technology. <laughs> Andy, uh, that now that we are back, uh, if you could continue uh, with the summary. Of course, of course. <clears throat> um, evil, meanwhile, has started his plans for the new world, and this time there will be no messing around with mollusks and fungi. He's beginning with computers. 
He turns one of his minions, Benson, into a dog to guard the map while he checks out the YouTube how-to videos in his vision pool. When the time bandits tiptoe in to steal the map, faithful Benson barks, but evil is too preoccupied to pay attention until it's too late. During this robbery, evil turns one of them into a half-pig. Just because he's evil doesn't mean that he has no sense of humor. Scary skull-headed creatures chase all of the time bandits as they flee with the map, and so Kevin and the half-pig distract the monsters while the others escape. Evil corners half-pig and Kevin, and just as they look doomed, the other time bandits return with reinforcements from many different eras, including knights, Cretan archers, and some cowboys. Evil makes mincemeat of all of these foes in ironic ways, then takes over Randall's tank and Wally's spaceship because high-tech weapons of annihilation are totally his jam. Wally and Randall escape the gun and laser fire, but in the chaos, a falling column kills Fidget. In an intense, emotional scene, Wally is about to take on Evil himself in revenge, when suddenly, Evil is struck from behind and turns into a charcoal statue. Okay, so funny note here is this scene was kind of improvised on the fly. If you read the original screenplay, the column was supposed to have fallen on Sean Connery's character, Agamemnon. And they didn't have Connery for this, uh, obviously, because, you know, he was originally just contracted to show up and play Agamemnon. He's like, this is my schedule, I'm done. Um, and then he was out, out he So was gone. basically, you know, they were like, Connery, we need you. And he's like, I'm going to have to shit this one out. I'm yes. just going to shit over here. I guess he, yes, that's exactly what he said. Yes, yeah, he, 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 um, yes, he did. He left them dangling. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, Wally but, no, is, Wally's amazing he, here. Yeah, no, this led to this really fantastic moment where there's some pathos in everybody's favorite fidget, Kenny Baker, who played R2-D2. Originally, the character of Fidget, who's supposed to be the cute one, well, you also might notice that he doesn't have any teeth. <laughs> they wanted it to be a bit horrifying at first. They didn't want people to initially see him or really any of them as cute. And so the makeup team was planning on giving him some pretty horrendous uh, dental prostheses that would look like uh, he had filed teeth. And when they said, okay, well, you know, we want to do this. And he says, oh, okay, are you going you gonna to give me some custom dentures? And they said, well, yeah. And so he said, well, why is that? And they said, well, we want you to look kind of scary. He's like, oh, how about I just take out my dentures? So he took them out. <laughs> he showed them and Terry Gilliam was like, yeah, yeah, bingo. There you go. You got it. And then like he and, and, and Jack Purvis's character, Wally, who were real life buds, they were able mm. to just like play that scene and actually get some real emotion and pathos for these little people and very, very much humanize them instead of leaning on their star power, which I thought was an excellent creative choice. But they did actually manage to get Connery back when it was uh, on break from Outland to, to squeeze him in at the end. The supreme being has arrived. Now, instead of a disembodied head, he is actually a guy in a boring suit. The supreme being resurrects Fidget so he can get back to work, then tells the other time bandits to clean up the mess. Every bit of evil has to go in the trash bin, no exceptions, and the time bandits gratefully get back to work. Randall tries kissing up to the Supreme Being, now that they've been caught, and asks for their old jobs back. 
The supreme being agrees to return them to the small shrubs and bracken department with a cut in salary backdated to the beginning of time. Sounds fair. Well, um, the other note, too, is that the, the actor who plays the um, supreme being is Sir Ralph Richardson, who was one of the 20th century's first dramatic knights, you know, which is a Satan, person who was knighted for services to drama. In fact, oh, yeah, he... Yeah. Very much a get for this production. Huge get. Um, you know, like he, he was actually considered to be a superior actor to Sir Laurence Olivier, who was knighted after him. <laughs> Evan isn't ready to take this whole evil thing lying down and starts a metaphysical debate with the Supreme Being about why evil needs to exist at all. During this debate, one chunk of evil breaks off and is hidden underneath the rubble. When the Supreme Being and the Time Bandits leave with the waste bin of evil, they leave this chunk behind along with Kevin. Which pretty seemed kind of harsh. I mean, he helped them defeat evil, and yet they're like, peace, and then just disappear. Yeah, fr from this point, they're just like, well, we've, we're back to our old jobs again. We're glad not to have been transformed into beetles by the Supreme Being. Bye. Well, th that was the thing that I always thought was kind of funny, too, is that, like, they're still incompetent enough that they leave a chunk of evil behind. Even with God there, you know, quote-unquote, you know, God, the supreme being, overseeing what they're doing, they all still fuck up and leave evil there. Ah, but do they? Or is it part of the plan? Ah. No, it's not part of the plan. They fucked up. <laughs> <clears throat> On the matter of why the Supreme Being would permit a creature like evil to exist in the first place, the creator of all the cosmos seems a little bit annoyed at the question. He just remarks that it's probably something to do with free will, and if that isn't the most succinct and complete answer to the question of evil you're ever going to get, I don't know what is. Well, that's about as deep a thought as you can get in a Terry Gilliam picture. He makes you think the deep thoughts, but he does it in such an off-the-cuff, offhand way that it leaves you ending up thinking about it more, I think. Yeah, and as a kid, as a kid watching this, it really does make you think. The fact that the kid's the one who asked the question is also very interesting. Well, those are the out-of-the-mouths-of-babes, you know? That's the whole thing, is children uh, ask the most important questions, especially about shit like that that people just take for granted. I think the kid's asking the question that all the children in the audience are asking right now. I mean, he's the supreme being. He didn't have to allow any of this. Why would he? And Gilliam is going, yeah, of course the kids are going to be thinking this, so we're going to ask it. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a reasonable question that adults would not ask. They just take it for granted that, oh, okay, evil exists. Yeah, but kids would definitely be like, hang on. Smoke starts rising. Far too much smoke. Kevin starts to cough. Everyone seems to be leaving him without a second thought. And then suddenly, Kevin wakes up from what seems to be a dream to a house full of smoke. A firefighter that looks surprisingly like King Agamemnon rescues him from the flames. It's this like, is, there remember, can be only one. Oh, God. This is pre-Highlander. Highlander is, 2 does not oh fucking exist. Oh, my no, God. I God. Just, guys, no, guys, Sean Connery guys. was in Highlander 1. No, listen, he was in Highlander listen. 1 and 2. So, not, not too much spoilers, but he cuts off the Manitar's head, and then later on, he's the fireman. You think that this was actually Rodrigo, or what was his name from Highlander? Yes, his name is Rodrigo. 
All right. Well, he plays a Greek and then he plays a Spaniard. No, what do you want from a Scotsman? No, it's actually Rodriguez or Rodrigo from Highlander all the time. I was born 3,000 years ago in Egypt. The cause of the fire was a toaster oven, but inside is a missing chunk of evil. Kevin still has the photos from his time travels and they confirm it. It was all real. Kevin shouts a warning, but his parents touch it anyway and disintegrate. Good. The firefighters leave and Kevin is left alone on planet Earth in our solar system in the Milky Way, which fades out to the map. The end of this movie was something of a debate. Actually, more, I wouldn't even say a debate. This was of a bitter row between Terry Gilliam and Dennis O'Brien, um, the co-founder uh, oh, really? of... Yeah, oh yeah. No, like, they they debated this to the point that they almost came to blows, which, um, yeah, yeah, no, the, and, and kind of led to, the, like I said, this is a, an apocryphal story, but apparently, like, this row is what led George Harrison to never speak to Terry Gilliam again, if the legend is correct. It may not be the case, but legend goes that George Harrison didn't speak to Terry Gilliam after this movie got made, and this was the reason why, was this end, because there's a couple major things. When you read the script, the way it ends, the parents don't get blown up. What happens is that, that Kevin gets gets disgusted, takes the map, which he also for some reason currently has, and marches off. He just walks off across the hills, and suddenly we see that he's marching with the time bandits themselves, and there's this marching song that they're doing, and he marches off into the sunset. Terry Gilliam thought that ending was stupid, and I, frankly, I have to agree with him. Um, but they, you know, when he said, okay, here's what I'm going to have to do is have the kid do it. The, the argument was between him and Dennis O'Brien, and Dennis O'Brien was like, no, that's too downbeat. No, that's too downbeat. And they got to the point where they, he was like, well, no, I mean, this is, this is, you know, like they got into the huge argument over it. And finally, the way they resolved it was they said, we're going to do a screen test. We're, we're going to show this, the version that I shot with these two kids, you know, with, with the parents getting blown up at the end. We're going to show this to an audience of kids and see what they say. So they do it. And Dennis O'Brien, you know, reluctantly agrees. And he's like, all right, fine. So they get an audience of kids at some place in fucking Harrow, I think. And they sit him down and they watch him. And the very first kid who comes out, a six-year-old kid, and Gilliam asks him, you know, with Dennis O'Brien like looming over him behind him, so what did you think of the film? What was your favorite part? And he's like, the part where the parents blew up. <laughs> and of so, course. yeah, because like you know, what kid hasn't dreamt of their parents blowing up? Which is the argument that Gilliam made to O'Brien. <laughs> so he just turns to O'Brien and looks at him and folds his arm. And this is like, okay. But because this led to such a bitter row, they didn't end up doing the song, which Harrison had written and recorded, which Gilliam hated because he was like, this is the 1979 version of Hi-Ho, Hi-Ho, fuck this. I don't want them dehumanized. So George Harrison was like, all right, fine, fuck you. I'm going to write this song. So he wrote this song called Dream Away, which you can listen to. It's on any place where you stream music. Mm. And there's a he wrote a dig, a lyrical dig at Terry Gilliam in it. This greedy feeling, wheeling, dealing, losing what you've won. See the dream come undone. Because he was so pissed off at Terry Gilliam's behavior with, with Dennis O'Brien. And he insisted. He said, no, no, as the person who is uh, bankrolling this film, I'm going to insist that this music be played under the uh, under the end credits of the film and that's what he did and it's a really good song as well it's actually really mm -hmm. awesome it's pure george harrison it's wonderful. oh yeah and yeah it's frankly right. you know if a beetle says well fuck you i'm gonna write a song about it then you just have to accept <laughs> that it. you have to take it <laughs> yeah oh they're bigger than jesus funny enough um as an adult watching the ending i'm like what the fuck but as a kid i can see that point of view because they yeah. were terrible parents Oh yeah, 
<laughs> I showed this to my daughter. I have a, a seven-year-old daughter. Um, she and I watched this, and she. And it was funny because she watched it. She got to the end, and she's like, she was horrified. She was like, but what happened to his parents? Where's, what's going to happen to him? I was like, did that bother you? And she's like, well, not the parents blowing up, but who's going to take care of him? <laughs> and I was like, oh, you sweet little kid. Oh, I absolutely feel for you. Yeah, I had that same thought too when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. It'll, it'll work itself out. It's important that the parents are blown up. That's the big thing to take away this. <laughs> There's some kind of commotion at the door. Well, we can't just open doors. We have Zach for that. Not your fucking doorman. Uh, it looks like a group of well-dressed Italian gentlemen with Thompson guns. I'll just ask what they want. Okay. <clears throat> Well, it's like this. Apparently, Honest Sal owes Frankie Knuckles, Jimmy the Face, and Three Toes Tony quite a lot of money. So tell them we don't have any. <laughs> I did try that. And you see, I don't think Frankie Knuckles is really happy with that answer. And um, in did general, telling them we don't have money is not usually something you want to say to a mafioso. Did you try reasoning with them? Uh, they offered to show me how Three Toes Tony got the name. Way ahead of you. Brother Methuselah, stall him. Bullocks to that! Oh, shit! Back there, there's a hole. Don't now! We made it! And we even finished discussing the film in detail. <sighs> what an adventure. Oh boy, that was rough. I didn't think we'd make it through that one. A truly epic battle. Hey, you know what's great after such a glorious victory? <laughs> ah, shit. Who let you out? Bug powder. Lay it on me, big guy. Smush it between the keys, wrap it into my carriage, return. Okay, you're going back into Brother Daniel's room, you freak. <laughs> No, happy, happy! Okay. You know, Time Bandits is such a strange film. I've seen it over 20 times and I'm still not sure I understand it. Look, it's a simple story. Dwarves get mad, boy meets dwarves, dwarves flee omnipotent super being through time, boy helps dwarves on a paradox-inducing robbery bender. Normal consequences follow. Ultimate avatar of evil desires 1980s consumer electronics. Supreme being intervenes, and Sean Connery shows up at the end. It's a tale that's been told over and over, and yet never gets old. <sighs> Damn it. So, what happened while we were away? Okay, I think I've, as the kids say, sussed it out what happened. Brother goddamn Methuselah forgot to bolt the door to the hazardous material room when he went to get the interocitor. Don't worry, though. Looks like the bug mutant typewriter found a way to get the chumps out of here. It's a win for us. We did. How? 
We dealt with it. What do you mean, dealt with it? We made the problem go away. What did you do? Don't worry about it. It's all good. What the actual fuck? Which one of you assholes use fucking bug powder to lure a raving pensioner into my store followed by a bunch of angry mutants that I had to dispose of? It's all good. <laughs> it's all good. No, it's not all good. They completely trashed the place. It's all fine. It's all good. Who are you anyways? I'm Doña Esperanza Cervando de de Rosas But there are those who call me Hope. I run the bookstore next door. Wait, is that where Brother Methuselah ended up? Yeah, the old guy who uses up all my toner printing pamphlets. Didn't know he had a name. He was cowering in a corner with a book in his hands shutting. In the light of the moon. Then he muttered something about a protection spell and ran off. I mean, obviously he didn't cast a protection spell. He was just reading The Very Hungry Caterpillar. Admittedly with impressive gravitas. Poor bastard, if he'd gone just one aisle over, he'd have found the actual spell books. Wait, your store has both spell books and the works of Eric Carle, beloved children's author? How did you never notice? We've shared a wall for 15 years. Yes, it's The Laughing Tome, family-friendly occult books and supplies. Well, I ran the bookstore next door, until your old fart and his horde of mutants destroyed it. Then the geezer hid in my freezer. So now I can't even get to my stash of vodka and popsicles. What am I going to have for breakfast? <laughs> Serves him right. He left the door to the hazardous waste storage unbolted in the first place. Ah, oh, this coming from the guardian of the door. Right. You know, in my defense, we got a lot of fucking doors. You should get on that. Basically, you're saying this is a win because the chumps became someone else's problem. Sounds like Operation Someone Else's Problem was a smashing success. Smashing. That's one way to put it. And somebody else? Yeah, that was me. Now I'm your problem. At least until my store gets fixed. Wait, if he's frozen in there now, that means when we found him in the future, um... Um... Uh, perhaps you might let me out of the freezer to spare me agonizing centuries of frozen boredom and pain. As opposed to your current thought-out boredom and pain? <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll get right on that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, drat. Well, that means judgment remains. We must vote on whether this film is guilty or innocent of... Cinemania. Well, if you're looking for opinions, I've got a few. Okay. Profligator Daniel, what is your judgment? So if for no other reason than right at the beginning of the film, right, the title card is just this giant portion of the map, but the map just has this mishmash of alchemical symbols, right? You've got um, the ring of the holy uh, phrase from the Quran, about uh, the purification of the soul. You've got a couple of different random symbols from other alchemical treatises. Like there's a lot of hodgepodge there. So like the fact that they don't put the same things together, it's just a chaotic mess of alchemical symbols. I think that could absolutely create cinemania in some way. Okay. Also, given the fact that like, I mean, this movie is itself a self-reflexive like time loop where like all we're seeing is the Groundhog Day perfect version where Kevin doesn't die or get left behind. There's so many moments where it should just say, and then he dies, 
right? Because, uh, what was it, Verge eats him, or they stab him, or he gets accidentally shot, or trampled by a horse, or drowned, or left behind, and just cut to the end, and they sell it in Sweden, right? Like, absolutely, Cinemania. And since it's a Gilliam movie, any of those could have actually happened in real life. Right, right, and they actually had to get, like, Kevin was actually quintuplets once upon a time, the actor who plays Kevin. (laughs) Repositor Andre, how do you judge this film? Uh, I, well, uh, oh, paper. Uh, This film is 100% guilty of Cinemania. Um, Yeah. Based on all of the details that you recall from having watched the film, eh? (laughs) Uh, You're done me proud. Sometimes you have to shit there and make judgment. So shit down, just shit in the corner, and judge. Did you forget to do your homework again, Andre? Maybe. Hey, it's a long way here from from Altair 4, or Altair E, as it should be in scientific terms, but whatever. It's a long way in which you could watch a movie. Okay, Boomer, you should know homework isn't something we do here in Gen Z. Yeah, exactly. Homework is outdated. (laughs) And you, interloper, uh, what is your judgment on this film? I don't have a fucking clue what y'all are doing, but... Man, I know it's a Gilliam film, so it's obviously guilty of something. Uh, I mean, I've seen enough of his films. He tries to kill small children and, you know. I mean, who doesn't? Goes out her budget and. Well, I don't know if I'd say he tries to kill small children. Maybe through neglect. I mean, he accepts the possibility. He doesn't try hard enough not to kill small children. He he understands that may be an outcome. Nobody wants it to happen, but sometimes it happens. Got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. And he's a, a serial yeah. recycler of tropes and actors. There's a reason his casting calls are all for quintuplets. <laughs> well, you know, so and Canadians. Canadian. He, he likes to cast Canadian children because they're all so compliant. <laughs> oh my God. I'm not joking. <laughs> the Canadians are too nice for their own good. <laughs> Bring me your finest Soviet twins. And, Canadian yeah. quintuplets straight from the freak shows. Scrutinizer Zachariah, how do you judge this film? Well, being that I saw this for the first time when I was about Kevin's age, it left a stain on me. It made me think about the purpose of my nipples at a very young age. And what I found was disturbing. It also, in later viewings, made me think of Sean Connery and his ability Ability to transport himself from the Greek age all the way into the modern age, which was the 80s, which made me think of another character that he played that transported through time and removed people's heads. That being of Ramirez from Highlander. So my working theory is that Time Bandits and Highlander are both connected. Not Highlander 2, mind you, because we do not, I repeat, do not acknowledge that that film exists. So, for making me question the purpose of my nipples at a young age and being linked to Highlander, I judge this film guilty. Inquisitor Ethan, what is your judgment? I can't even count the number of times I've seen this film. And I have all- It was 31 times. 
No, more than that, I'm sure. I, I love this film and I could literally watch it any time. Um, but I can say that it definitely instilled in me a love for Terry Gilliam movies as a specific thing. Um, and is one of the films I would say inspired me to go to film school and begin studying because I became obsessed with Terry Gilliam and Terry Gilliam movies and and then uh, got the idea at one point that I, I thought maybe I might be creative enough to make films like him. Nobody's creative and as creative as he is. That guy is that guy is an uh, I would say even Stanley Kubrick would probably have doffed his hat to him for how um, how much of an auteur he was. But uh, for inspiring or being, you might say, the, the ultimate example of the auteur director um, and inspiring me uh, along with countless other uh, students of my generation to go to film school and try to become their own little Terry Gilliams, I would say this film is wildly guilty. Um, for inspiring Cinemania in me and countless others, and uh, or at least getting you started on a path to watch other Gilliam films and thus develop an irreversible case of Cinemania, as I have. And Verifier Andy, what is your judgment on Time Bandits? This film asks many questions. Questions like, given that God is infinite and given that the universe is infinite, would you like a piece of toast? And it suggests that toast is evil and will destroy your parents immediately. This film scarred me brutally as a child, for which I am forever grateful. However, I must judge it guilty of all cinemania. And having looked through the charges from the beginning, in addition to everything that's already been said, I would also have to agree that this film is guilty, especially the improper identification of what is edible. Children, evil, rats, uh, quite a large list, um, which we would not encourage in a functional human not chump society. So I also concur. We must conclude that this film is guilty of cinemania. And with that, this conclave whew, is finally adjourned. That episode of the Cinemania Society featured Daniel Scribner, Andy Slack, Andrea Palladino, Zachariah Burks, Andre Luke Martinez, and Ethan Ireland. Introducing Hope Bravo. Written by Andrea Palladino and Andy Slack. Produced, mixed, and mastered by Ethan Ireland. Graphic design by Andy Slack. Music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Visit our website at thecinemaniasociety.podbean.com and check out our social media feeds. We're on Twitter at TCS underscore Cinemania. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review wherever you found us. Mention us on social media or find us on Ko-Fi to throw us a few bones. We love to make fun stuff for folks, but it isn't free. Anything and everything helps. Coming soon, the Cinemania Society will be creating pieces of video media, short films and the like. So stay tuned, Cinemaniacs. The Cinemania Society is a production of the Cinemania Society, LLC.